Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. I'm very appreciative of the fact that you decided to join us. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, this opening segment I tentatively titled, or the note that I have sketched to myself here, is uh, When the Revolt Happens. When the Revolt Happens. And this is a phenomenon that I've noticed. I've noticed as I've read uh, various history books, and I've noticed this in marriage counseling. And this is a weird psychological quirk that people have. I think I can explain part of it, but there are parts of it, I think, that are simply inexplicable. Let's say you've got a situation of genuine oppression, genuine tyrannical oppression. And this oppression can be society-wide. Let's say the, uh, the absolutist and tyrannical disposition of the kings of France in the 1600s, let's say, the monarchy and the aristocracy of the 1700s was not nearly as bad as the uh, previous century, not nearly as oppressive. And you, you can describe this phenomenon this way. Many times despots, tyrants, they're in a very precarious position that the people don't know about and which they do know about. They have a grizzly bear by the ears, in other words. And they know that they cannot afford to loosen their grip at all. If they loosen their grip, if they, in, in, if they start instituting reforms, the loosening of the grip is what precipitates the revolt. In other words, we sometimes think that well, it's actually, it's going to get bad enough at some point, it's going to get bad enough that everybody involved is going to just go up like a sheet of flame, and they are going to not take it anymore. We believe that revolts happen at the worst points of oppression. But often, revolts happen when the reforms are instituted. So when things start to lighten up, people get greedy for everything all of a sudden. Okay, things are starting to improve. We need to demand everything all at once. And of course, this causes the tyrant to think to himself, you know, I, I can't afford to lighten up at all. So the revolt happens not because things are, have finally gotten to the point where they're really, really bad. The revolt happens because things have started to markedly improve. Something like that is what happened in France, and then, of course, resulted in the French Revolution and the terror. Something similar, analogous, not exactly the same, but something similar happened in, with, with regard to race relations in the United States. in the 19, So between 1940 and 1960, let's say 1940 and 1960, the lot of black citizens was steadily improving. It was, it was getting regularly better and better and better. And it was improving in economic terms. And that was connected to the fact that there was a black middle class that was uh, developing. And 
the uh, segregation laws, uh, discrimination laws were losing in court. Uh, they were they're, they're being struck down. So generally, you had a real, a genuine movement upwards, a steady trajectory upwards. And this is something that you can see detailed in uh, Thomas uh, Sowell's great book, new book called uh, Social Justice Fallacies. So things were steadily improving. And then the 60s hit. And when the 60s hit, it was like, instead of saying, oh man, this is a good, that what's happened over the last 20 years is really, really good business. Let's push it along. Let's steadily improve even further. What happened was the 64 Civil Rights Act and the, the whole, everything exploded. And what it exploded into was a nanny state, welfare state approach to helping. I'll, I'll put, this is audio, but you'll just imagine scare quotes around helping, where LBJ's war on poverty and the the whole thing was unleashed, and it totally demolished the black family. So you had uh, rates of illegitimacy were significantly low between 1940 and 1960. And, and of course, one of the key uh, predictors of whether someone's going to wind up poor, impoverished, addicted, or in the penitentiary is whether they grow up in a single parent home. It's not like putting the eight ball in the corner pocket, but it is one of the predictors. So what happens is things starting to lighten up and then to actually objectively improve. And then the revolt happens. I, I mentioned I'd seen this in marriages. I've, I've seen uh, marriages where in the early years of the marriage, the husband was just a complete toad, uh, just abusive, controlling, manipulative, just a bad guy. And then when the Lord gets, got a hold of him or he started to grow up a little bit or yeah, there, something started to happen and he started to become something that was more resembled more of a civilized human being, it was then that the wife revolts. In other words, she suffers under this tyrant for years. Oh, I wish he would improve. I wish he would improve. I wish he would improve. And then we could have a decent marriage. But then when he starts to improve, instead of working, oh, let's, have, let's work on a decent marriage, that's often when the revolt happens. And of course, there are reasons for it. I, there are reasons for it, but it's still worth noting. Always will be God. So, continuing with the podcast, episode 300, as we continue to soldier through our study of sin, aptly called homartiology, I've decided to take two different words at one go. Well, sorry, this time we're going to do two words at once. And the reason for this is that they are very similar words, one a verb and one a noun. But because they both amount to the same thing, I thought, you all would give me a pass, cramming two words into one thing. I will mention both and then make a few comments after that. The first word is theomacheo, theomacheo, T-H-E-O-M-A-C-H-E-O, theomacheo, a verb meaning to fight against God. The second word is theomachos, theomachos, T-H-E-O-M-A-C-H-O-S, rendered as fight against God. Each one is only used one time in Scripture and used in much the same way, and that's why I'm putting them together. So, leave me alone. The first instance is this, Acts 23, 9. 
And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Acts 23.9 This was after Paul had shouted out in the Sanhedrin that he was a Pharisee and that he was on trial over the resurrection of the dead. The second instance came in the words of Gamaliel, cautioning the Sanhedrin against persecuting the early church. Acts 5.39 But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. All right, so those are the two instances rendered in English as fight against God, but one is Theomacheo and the other is Theomachos. Now, clearly, it is a sin to fight against God, but it is, it is striking that in the New Testament, both of the instances of this word use are found in the mouths of Jews who were not Christians, right? The first were scribes who were Pharisees in the Sanhedrin who allowed Paul to bait them. Paul said, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead, knowing that part of the Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees who believed in the resurrection of the dead and who believed in angels and spirits, and that the other part of the Sanhedrin was made up of um, Sadducees who denied the existence of angels and spirits and who denied the resurrection. So Paul says, shouts out in the Sanhedrin, I'm, I'm on trial here because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so the Pharisees there were goaded into supporting Paul, maneuvered into supporting Paul, because they, with him, believed in angels and spirits and resurrection. They took the bait and started contending for the truth of the resurrection generally, even though they disputed his view of the Lord's resurrection. The thing that made uh, Paul a Christian was that he believed that the resurrection of the dead, the first fruits of that resurrection, had happened in the middle of history. And in the second instance, Gamaliel, who had been Paul's instructor, gave wise and judicious counsel. If there's one thing you don't want to do, it is to find yourself fighting against God. Give this thing time to play out, Gamaliel urges them. If it's not of God, it's going to go the way these things always do. If it is of God, it's going to continue to go. Now, it's quite interesting to speculate whether, you know, what Gamaliel may have thought of the growth of the Christian movement in the decades following this. But he he gave wise and judicious counsel here. God don't never change. He's God. All right, so we come now to uh, my book review section, and uh, this time I'm reviewing a book called 2084 by John Lennox. 2084 by John Lennox. John Lennox is a scientist and Christian apologist, and this book is about artificial intelligence. It's about AI. And he makes some helpful distinctions in this book. There, there, there is what you might call narrow AI and, uh, and what you might call general AI. General AI is the sort of thing where some futurists, secular, unbelieving futurists, would like to see a day arrive when you have smart devices in your house that are all connected to one another. Yeah, your refrigerator and your toaster and your phone and your television and your car are all wired up together. And when we do this 
and enough people have the same thing happen to them, somebody can wire them all together and we achieve this, you know, the singularity where this giant web of artificial intelligences coagulates and becomes sentient. And so then we are here, here we are at the singularity and we were present uh, when we created God, right? With mankind by his, uh, by his um, cleverness, by, by, by his um, ability to seek out many devices has created God. Now, the uh, narrow AI is where you simply have one device that's programmed to do one thing, and it and and it can do that one thing remarkably. So, I've commented to my wife when we've traveled to different cities and rented a car, and we want to find our way to the hotel, or we we go to another city and we have to find a, a wedding uh, venue because we're there for a wedding. Uh, we just type all we need is the address, and we type the address into our phone, and and off we go. And it's hard for me to remember what we used to do back in the day. We, I mean, we used to go to weddings, and I used to fly to cities and rent cars. And <laughs> how did I get to my hotel? I I don't know. We were in one city at one time, and and we were driving down a straightaway, and it said uh, the phone said something like. In one mile, turn left at the at the light, and I made a joke to my wife, saying, "Well, in a short space of time, these phones are going to be saying, turn in one mile, turn left at the light, which will be green when you get there.'" You know, ho ho ho. Well, I was then talking uh, later to a man, a Christian, who is working at uh, on computer mapping. And I mentioned this to him, you know, this uh, joke I'd made. And he said something like, well, we're working, we're working on that. That's a very narrow sort of thing, right? I remember the first time I started up my car in the morning or at work, I forget, and my phone buzzed and it says, uh, you know, five minutes to work. So my phone was tracking the fact that I'd started my car, started started up my truck, and that this was a time of day when I was most likely going to work, and it helpfully told me how how long, how many minutes I was going to be on the road. Okay, uh, that that's problematic, and it's problematic when your phone is listening to you all the time. When you've had a conver, let's say you have a conversation with your family about when you were a kid, you owned a hamster, and you told a, several hamster stories. And then Facebook starts feeding you ads on where you can buy a hamster. Okay, that's there. There are parts of this that are creepy, and parts of this that we we really want to think like Christians about how to navigate the difference between narrow AI, which can be really helpful when you're trying to find the trying to find a strange address in a strange city, and global AI, which is the sort of thing that is the uh, the kind of tool that a de- that a despot would only uh, uh, could only dream of, right? And that's why Lennox uh, named his book 2084, a century after Orwell's 1984. And uh, so Lennox does a good job helpfully distinguishing things that are not problematic in themselves and things that uh, could well be problematic. It's a good little Christian introduction to the subject of AI. Uh, the one thing I'll just say 
one cautionary note. And this is because of, I no doubt, because of my preterism, my partial preterism and my um, post-millennialism. But near the end of the book, he very clearly started um, talking about these things in the light of his apparent premillennialism. Uh, and it was very striking to me. He's a brilliant man. And and listening to a, a brilliant man discussing scripture in a premillennial framework, it really surprised me at how much like cold porridge it, that all tasted. But that that was the only fly in the ointment. The rest of, the rest of the book was uh, uh, really helpful. 